Welcome to NTD News Today. Here are today's top stories. Humanitarian aid will be going to Gaza through one more border crossing. What's Israel deciding during the war? Hunter Biden is facing more legal trouble than just one indictment. What do we know about these charges so far? An expert weighs in. The military is on track to keep funding travel for abortions and other controversial operations. This as lawmakers introduce the annual defense policy bill. We bring you what's included. U.S. rail construction gets a boost. The Biden administration grants more than $8 billion for high-speed passenger rail projects across the nation. A former drug trafficker now works on the other side of the law, teaching police how to fight the cartels. We have the story of the man who helped bring down El Chapo. A heartfelt plea from Russian women demanding the return of their husbands from Ukraine's front line. The wife of one soldier shares her story. This is NTD News Today, live from our NTD Global Headquarters. Here are Stephania Cox and Chris Beers. We open with the latest updates on the war in Gaza. Israel will be opening its border crossing with Gaza for the first time during the war. Authorities will screen and inspect humanitarian aid going into Gaza at the Karim Shalom border crossing. The U.S. requested the opening. And inside Gaza, the Israeli military will continue to make sweeping arrests to determine who is Hamas terrorists. Authorities were questioning the detainees they already rounded up. According to a Bloomberg report, the Palestinian Authority is working with the Biden administration on a political plan for Gaza once the war is over. The Palestinian Authority said Hamas could join them in building a new and independent Palestinian state. The U.S. Embassy in Baghdad was attacked with two salvos of rockets this morning, but there were no casualties. An embassy spokesperson added that the attack is believed to have been carried out by an Iran-aligned militias in Iraq. No group immediately claimed responsibility. An umbrella group of Iran-aligned Muslim militias began attacking U.S. forces on military bases in Iraq and Syria in mid-October. However, this was the first reported rocket attack against the embassy. The armed groups operate under the banner of the Islamic resistance in Iraq. Iraq's prime minister released a statement describing the group as unruly and lawless. He said the group does not represent the will of the Iraqi people. Hunter Biden is facing new criminal charges. It's the second criminal case special counsel David Weiss has brought against the president's son and his long-running DOJ investigation. Weiss announced the indictment last night accusing Hunter Biden of failing to pay over a million dollars in taxes while spending millions on, quote, items of a personal nature instead. The indictment alleges this took place during a four-year scheme to support what it called a lavish lifestyle. NTD's Jeremy Sandberg has more on the new change charges. A California grand jury returned a nine-count indictment against Hunter Biden Thursday, charging him with three felony tax offenses and six misdemeanor tax offenses. Special counsel David Weiss alleging the first son spent millions on a lavish lifestyle and drugs instead of fulfilling his tax obligations. Weiss says the charges include three counts of failure to pay taxes for the years 2016, 2017, and 2019, 
and three counts of failure to file tax returns for the years 2017 and 2018. The special counsel's team accuses Hunter Biden of engaging in a four-year scheme to avoid paying taxes amounting to at least $1.4 million. Prosecutors allege that Hunter Biden included false business deductions when filing for 2018 after eventually paying for that year, and claim it was done in order to evade assessment and reduce the substantial tax liabilities he faced. Also in the 56-page indictment are accusations of subverting the payroll and tax withholding process of his own company by withdrawing millions of dollars outside of its normal withholding process. It accuses the president's son of spending his money during that time on drugs, escorts and girlfriends, luxury hotels, exotic cars, and clothing among other items of a personal nature, quote, in short, everything but his taxes. It states he spent over $1.8 million in 2018 alone, listing roughly 770000 in cash withdrawals that year, along with over $380,000 payments to women, and close to 150000 on clothing and accessories. The indictment also lists spending for 2016, 2017, and 2019. Hunter Biden's attorney, Abby Lowell, stated Thursday, based on the facts and the law, charges wouldn't have been brought if his client had any other last name. Lowell accuses Weiss of reneging on a prior plea deal under GOP pressure, and then piling on nine new charges after a five-year-long investigation. If convicted on all counts, Hunter Biden could face a maximum penalty of 17 years in prison. The Justice Department says its investigation is ongoing. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. We reached out to the White House, DOJ, and Hunter Biden's attorney for comment. We'll let you know when we hear back. And for analysis of Hunter Biden's latest indictment, I spoke with retired FBI agent and former assistant district attorney for Brooklyn, Mark Ruskin. Mark Ruskin, thank you for joining us again. Good to have you back on the show. What do we know about the charges against Hunter Biden so far? Hi, Chris. It's good to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Well, it looks like there's really quite a uh, thorough uh, set of charges which have been prepared, a very weighty indictment with both misdemeanor and felony federal counts. So it, I think that uh, he and his uh, attorneys are going to have their hands full in the, uh, in the coming month and years, maybe. Now, the special counsel originally wanted to bring charges against Hunter in this district, but was prevented from doing so. Tell us about this. Well, you know, federal jurisdiction can be a, a very uh, complex matter because, you know, you, you can have a jurisdiction in various federal districts, and then you can also have a state or, or local jurisdiction to cover the same acts. So, uh, and uh, usually it's legal matters which can divide and determine which jurisdiction, which district the case is going to be brought in. But, but often there are other unrelated issues which can be involved as well. You know, there, there are, there are uh, political considerations. There's such a thing as what's called forum shopping, where one party or the other tries to select the forum which will be more favorable to their point of view. So here it was probably a, a, a mix of all those issues which resulted in the final determination uh, that the jurisdiction would be uh, in California. And Mark, why do you suspect the special counsel is now able to bring this indictment? What changed? Well, I, I, the, the, well many things have changed, including the climate uh, the political climate in the country and the public awareness of what's been going on with regard to uh, Hunter Biden and his 
uh, kind of shenanigans, if you will. The uh, the case which is being brought or investigated by the Judiciary Committees and the Oversight Committee in Congress you know, have brought to the public's awareness a lot of what's been going on with regard to not just Hunter Biden, but other members of his family, to include his father. And some of it is so blatant that the time has come, I suspect, when it can't be swept under the rug anymore you know, with his... Uh, uh, the, the the charges for the for the handgun originally and the the yeah. ones that were dismissed, that could be uh, swept under the rug. But now it's it's getting it's like Pandora's box. It's out of control. And how could all this affect uh, President Joe Biden's campaign for the twenty twenty four election? Well, I mean, it can certainly have a uh, pejorative effect if the. Uh, snowball rolling down the hill starts to gather momentum and starts to become larger and larger. And as the uh, case becomes more and more public and the public becomes aware of what uh, is implied here in terms of, of the president and, and his family members, it can, you know, it could lead him to uh, ultimately to determine that perhaps he shouldn't run, perhaps his age is a factor. And he would make some, uh, you know, uh, cursory remarks as to why uh, uh, the time has come to to pull out. So it could affect the decision not to run. It certainly wouldn't uh, be very beneficial to him uh, in his campaign. And Mark, next week the House is expected to vote on whether or not to uh, conduct an impeach impeachment inquiry into President Biden um, about his family's business dealings. How could this recent indictment? Um, uh, affect that vote? Well, the recent indictment, from a legal point of view, is, is essentially unrelated to the impeachment process. I mean, these are two processes. One uh, defined, the impeachment process is defined by the Constitution in terms of its parameters, and the uh, judicial process, the prosecution uh, in the federal district court essentially are going to be proceeding in as parallel cases, but not interrelated cases. But obviously, since the personnel uh, overlap, there's going to be an overlap in terms of interest and in terms of some of the fact situations. All right. Mark Ruskin, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me here. New York lawmakers are commenting on shots fired outside a synagogue in the state's capital. On Thursday, just hours before Hanukkah, a man in Albany reportedly fired a shotgun twice before yelling, free Palestine. The suspect was taken into custody and later charged. No one was injured in the incident. New York Governor Kathy Hochul commented. Every act, whether it's verbal or physical, any act of anti-Semitism is unacceptable and undermining the public safety at our synagogue the first night of Hanukkah is even more deplorable. NBC reports the suspect is a 28-year-old Mufid Fawaz Al-Qahedar, who was federally charged with possession of a firearm by a prohibited person. Congresswoman Grace Mung of New York also said she was disturbed by the incident, especially as Hanukkah was set to begin. And an update on a college student of Palestinian descent who was shot in Vermont. 
Hisham Awartani has now left the hospital. His family says he's currently paralyzed from the chest down as a bullet is lodged in his spine. Awartani is one of three childhood friends who graduated from a school in the West Bank. They now attend colleges in the eastern U.S. According to the family, the three were walking to the house of a family member for dinner when they were shot in an unprovoked attack late last month. Ivy League universities facing backlash over campus anti-Semitism are now facing repercussions. A prominent rabbi and anti-Semitism advisor at Harvard, David Volpe, resigned yesterday, citing painfully inadequate testimony from Harvard President Claudine Gay. He also says the system at Harvard and its ideology grip far too many students and faculty. Volpe says the ideology works only along axes of oppression. He argues that portraying Jews as oppressors and inherently evil is wrong and makes the entire ideology evil. Major UPenn donor Ross Stevens says he's withdrawing a $100 million donation. His attorneys say it's because UPenn violated the firm's limited partnership agreement. Stevens' lawyers say the university failed to meet its anti-discrimination and harassment rules. He mentioned UPenn President Liz McGill's recent testimony when she said calls for genocide violate policy based on the context and whether they were directed, pervasive and severe. The board of UPenn's Wharton Business School is now calling for McGill's resignation. Earlier, I spoke with Gerard Felitti, senior counsel at the Lawfare Project, for more about the new pressure on these schools. Gerard Felitti, thank you for joining us. What message does this $100 million loss send to UPenn? Well, it sends the message that donors are fed up with inaction on anti-Semitism. It sends the message that alumni, donors, institutions, just like the U.S. Congress and the American people, are sick and tired of not seeing the administration do anything, that this inaction has consequences. And if the school is unwilling to impose consequences and Jew hatred, donors are going to take their money elsewhere and not support an institution that's failing. How significant is this law for you, Penn? It's pretty significant. It's uh, UPenn relies significantly on donor funding. It has a large endowment, but not as large as, for example, Harvard. It depends on money to build buildings, to tenure professors, to continue activities. One loss of $100 million honestly is not the biggest deal, but it's a trend. We see more and more donors behind the scenes pulling donations or donating just $1, where before they donated a lot more. If this trend continues, it will really impact Penn's bottom line and other universities as well. And are we seeing these losses, these withdrawals, um, affect leadership at these colleges at all at this point? Leadership is being questioned more and more by the boards of directors. You saw at UPenn, for example, Wharton School is very much interested in maintaining donor relations. It's a business school that's known for developing business relations and maintaining strong alumni connections. And when they see that the administration is causing donors to pull funding, it sends the message that they need to change. So the administration, the presidents, are under more pressure from within the school to do something. The, this is an effect that the donation lack is, is, is having. And when you say do something, what could that look like? It, it looks like action, not, not the words that we saw in the congressional testimony the other day. It means enforcing policies against bigotry and hate. It includes imposing consequences on all of these students that we've seen practically rioting on college campuses, uh, yelling genocidal chants against Jewish students. Imposing consequences is not 
just making statements. It's actually expelling students, suspending students, making it clear that this kind of behavior is unacceptable. And until donors and the public see that, the pressure will continue on these presidents. All right, Gerard, let's turn our attention to Harvard. Their prominent rabbi, David Volpe, uh, from Harvard's anti-Semitism board, um, in an ex-post, he called Harvard president Dr. Claudine Gay's testimony at Congress um, painfully inadequate. What happened at that hearing? The hearing was an opportunity for these presidents to come and explain what measures they're taking to protect Jewish students, what measures they're taking to protect minority students and enforce their civil rights. But what we saw instead was prevarication, prepared statements probably written by lawyers that didn't say anything, and a blatant refusal to answer direct questions like, is genocide wrong or a genocidal chance calling for the deaths of Jews improper conduct on college campuses. And seeing that conduct, see, seeing these, these statements made by university professors so disgusted people, including the rabbi, that they're now taking action. The rabbi, I think, resigned yesterday uh, over this. And in, in his post, Rabbi Wolpe called out an ideology at Harvard that, quote, works only along axes of oppression and places Jews as oppressors. What's he talking about here? There is no doubt in anyone's mind that if you are on Harvard's campus calling for the genocide of African Americans, you will face consequences. If you're misgendering people, you will face consequences. But calling for the death of Jews has no consequences. That's the hierarchy of oppression. Jews are not seen as a protected class at Harvard, which is blatantly illegal because under the Civil Rights Act, they are entitled to protection as a minority people. And what, what can colleges do to respond to this? Colleges need to impose consequences. They, they need to make it clear that conduct that's intimidating, threatening, and harassing to any students, but now especially to Jewish students, is unacceptable and has consequences. If you're going around a college campus chanting intifada, which is a call for genocide, you need to be expelled. You need to face punishment, not to be allowed to continue doing this now for over two months since Gaza attacked Israel. This is what colleges need to do, impose consequences, uphold the law, and enforce the rules so that Jewish students and all students are kept safe. All right, Gerard Feliti, thank you so much. Always a pleasure, thank you. Coming up, a financially struggling academic with a list of targets. Police have new information about the Vegas campus shooting suspect. A real-time crime center in D.C. will monitor cameras 24-7. The mayor weighs in on the importance of this new initiative. A multi-threat storm is set to hit the eastern half of the U.S. this weekend. What severe weather can we expect? More in just a moment here on NTD News Today. The U.S. economy is up nearly 200,000 new jobs. According to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, 199,000 jobs were added in November. That figure was about 20,000 more than economists had expected. The unemployment rate fell from 3.9% to 3.7%. President Biden and transportation officials have announced more than $8 billion in federal rail grants. The money will go toward 10 projects, all funded by the bipartisan infrastructure law. 
The ambitious Brightline West project is getting $3 billion alone. The high-speed rail line is expected to connect Las Vegas to Los Angeles in half the time it currently takes to drive. Planners hope it will be completed in, the time, in time for the 2028 Olympics in LA. Also getting funding, a controversial high-speed rail project connecting Los Angeles to San Francisco that's already years behind schedule. In Maryland, light rail services will be suspended at all stops starting today for emergency inspections and repairs. Maryland Transit Authorities say the suspension is out of an abundance of caution. They discovered the potential for a punctured conduit on its light rail vehicles. This comes after a blowout and several smoke events between November 2021 and November 2023, with three of those incidents happening in the past four months. One person suffered minor injuries in an October incident. Limited service is set to be restored once inspection and repair is completed on at least eight rail cars. Full service will be restored once inspection and repairs on all 19 vehicles is complete. It's unclear when the work will be completed. In the meantime, shuttle buses will be provided at all stations. Lawmakers have presented the annual defense policy bill. House and Senate committees agreed on a piece of legislation leaving out some divisive social issues like abortion and transgender surgeries. The Armed Services Committees of both chambers released the 2024 National Defense Authorization Act. This year's bill authorizes the highest annual budget ever. The act allocates almost $900 billion in spending. That's a 3% increase over last year. However, it does not include some social issues House Republicans wanted to see in the bill, like abortions and transgender surgeries. This means the Pentagon's controversial policy of reimbursing service members who travel to obtain abortions will stay in place. And coverage of transition surgeries for transgender troops will also continue. But there are some Republican points left in this year's bill. Namely, the bill will strip funding for military drag show performances. It's also set to outlaw instruction of critical race theory. The bill is expected to pass both chambers and be signed into law by President Biden. A senator's son is charged with manslaughter after a deadly car chase. He allegedly stole a car and ultimately crashed it into an empty patrol vehicle, which killed a deputy standing nearby. Police in Bismarck responded to a stolen car report on Wednesday. According to a highway patrol news release, officers approached the suspect, Ian Kramer, who then fled. The release says Kramer then crashed into an empty patrol vehicle that was parked on the side of the road. Mercer County Deputy Paul Martin was standing outside the car and about to deploy stop sticks to end the pursuit. Kramer is the son of North Dakota Senator Kevin Kramer. The senator said in a statement that his son suffers from serious mental disorders which manifest in severe paranoia and hallucinations. The Coast Guard Wednesday displayed more than 18,000 pounds of seized cocaine in San Diego. The illicit drugs have an estimated street value of more than $239 million. The haul is from six separate busts of suspected drug smuggling vessels. The seizures occurred off the Mexican Central and South American coasts. The cocaine was seized in November. The most recent bust on November 20th was the largest. The Coast Guard intercepted a self-propelled semi-submersible carrying more than 5,500 pounds of cocaine. Several U.S. agencies work together to fight transnational crimes such as drug trafficking. 
According to Customs and Border Protection, authorities seized over 40 tons of cocaine this year. A former Chicago drug trafficker now has a new job. He's teaching law enforcement how to fight cartels and illegal drug smugglers. We have the story of the man who helped bring down El Chapo. Please note that we didn't show his face out of concern for his safety. I come from a family of drug traffickers. This is Margarito Flores. He used to work with one of the world's most notorious drug kingpins, Joaquin El Chapo Guzman. By the time I was 17, I guess uh, I graduated by then, right? I had a degree in drug trafficking. Flores went from counting packages of drugs as a child to running a multi-billion dollar network with his twin brother in the Chicago area in the early 2000s to eventual informant who turned on El Chapo. Now he's pulling back the curtain on his former trade secrets for law enforcement. We're going to be going around the country and hopefully around the world and being able to share some of these, um, these tactics. That's where you see money and, and drugs. Flores works with an Illinois-based firm called Dynamic Police Training. At this session near Chicago, over 100 law enforcement personnel are learning about the flow of bulk U.S. currency that finances trafficking. So I'm talking about bulk U.S. currency that, that needs to be moved in semi-trucks. That is what fuels drug cartels. Between 2005 and 2008, the Flores Brothers distribution cell earned nearly $2 billion receiving more than 3,300 pounds of cocaine a month from the Beltran Leva and El Chapo's Sinaloa cartels. That's according to federal court documents and the U.S. Department of Justice. Arrested in 2008, the brothers were sentenced to 14 years in prison. For their cooperation, they served five. Prosecutors credit them with providing unparalleled assistance for the government's case against El Chapo. As informants, the Flores brothers pressed record on an audio tape device and called him to discuss a heroin shipment. The phone call for sure, we knew that it was gonna, you know, change our lives because the government had let us know that there has never been a legally uh, recorded or intercepted call with Chapo Guzman talking about a, a drug transaction in the United States. What do they want to do? The brothers were released in 2020. Get rid of it. Flores's law enforcement trainees told Reuters his insight helps them figure out the best way to dismantle narcotics networks. I don't know if there's anyone out there that could, you know, sit here today and, you know, understand the American drug trade, mm -hmm. the Mexican drug trade, as I have. I live both sides of it from every aspect. And Washington, D.C. is launching a new crime-fighting initiative called the Real-Time Crime Center. D.C. police will run the center and the monitor a network of more than 300,000 closed circuit, excuse me, 300 closed circuit cameras 24 hours a day. It's a bid to take the serious crime spike in the city. We have to have more technology uh, to, to balance off not having the number of people resources that we have had in past years. So no camera will pre replace a live 
police officer. Uh, but it does enhance um, the, the uh, force's ability to be in more places. The American Civil Liberties Union of D.C. called the plan, quote, an alarming expansion of government surveillance. The real-time crime center is expected to launch in February. And lead poisoning linked to recalled applesauce pouches has increased. The FDA says the number of children sickened has risen to 64. They're all under the age of six. The FDA previously recalled three products and said cinnamon may be the source of the lead contamination. The agency now says the cinnamon was supplied by a company in Ecuador called Negasmart. According to the FDA, Ecuadorian authorities reported the cinnamon had higher levels of lead than that allowed in the country. The FDA also says it conducted an on-site inspection of the facility in Ecuador and ingredient sample collection is underway. Another recall is for a toy. The Consumer Product Safety Commission has recalled more than 700 units of colorful metal magnetic balls from Express Goods. Parents should immediately take them from children and contact the company for a refund. The agency says if swallowed, the magnetic balls can attract to each other and become lodged in the digestive system. This could tear or block the intestines and cause blood poisoning or even death. The CPSC estimates there were 2,400 emergency room visits from 2017 through 2021 due to people swallowing small magnetic balls. Seven deaths were reported, including five in the U.S. The CPSC also issued several warnings Thursday for similar high-powered magnetic balls from six other companies. Most were sold on Timu. The South and Northeast are bracing for storms this weekend. The Storm Prediction Center says the Arkansas, Louisiana, Texas region could see damaging wind and large hail Friday night into Saturday. Some of these isolated systems may also produce a few tornadoes. Heavy rain is also expected in the Great Lakes through Ohio and down to Tennessee valleys. Between two and four inches is likely in the southeast. As the weekend progresses, the mid-Atlantic and northeast could see heavy rain on Sunday. Cold air filling in behind the front could briefly turn that into snow. Coming up after the break, the situation looks dire regarding peace talks between Russia and Ukraine. We bring you what the Kremlin says about possible negotiations. And in Germany, train passengers are stranded at stations. This comes as train drivers strike. We'll hear from passengers and what they think about the strike when we return. A growing movement of Russian women is demanding the safe return of their husbands, sons and brothers from the front lines. We hear from the wife of a soldier who was mobilized into battle last year. Maria Andreeva's husband has been fighting in Ukraine for more than a year, but she's waging her own battle in Moscow to get him home. And she's not alone. An increasing number of Russian women are demanding the return of their husbands, sons and brothers from the front line. They were mobilized following a decree by President Vladimir Putin in September last year. Hundreds of thousands of young men rushed to leave Russia. Millions did not and some of them were called up to fight. We want our men to be demobilized, to bring them back home to us. 
because we believe that in a year they have done all they could for the front and even more that was required of them. They are civilians. First of all, they're losing their skills. They're losing their health, both physical and psychological. Since Andreeva's husband was mobilized, he's only been back for two short breaks to see his wife and young daughter. Andreeva says this is insufficient for a soldier fighting in a conflict. Just so my daughter understands that you can play with that, that dad is nearby, that dad rocks her in the evening. You see, her dad is very involved and has been so right from the beginning. And it's very hard for her without her dad. And then boom, here we go again. As part of their demonstrations, they're aiming right at the top. We are trying to get through the direct line with the president. Then we will think further. Solitary protests, something like putting stickers on cars so that they don't forget about us. We will put prints on clothing, do everything possible to attract attention to the problem. We will also try to interact with the media. Many girls already want to, are ready, are trying. Tackling the movement is a delicate matter for the Kremlin. Moscow sent tens of thousands of troops to Ukraine in February 2022. In previous wars, it has tolerated higher death tolls than would be politically palatable in Western countries. But the growing movement of Russian women emphasizes the complexity and inequality of keeping so many men at war for so long, especially while many more of fighting age remain at home. Women in Ukraine have also demanded their men be allowed back from the front. And staying with Europe, we have some short headlines from the UK, Germany and other countries. After bilateral talks, the US and UK say they're in lockstep on supporting Ukraine. America's Foreign Secretary, Antony Blinken, used the meeting with his British counterpart to advocate for President Biden's supplemental aid package. The $100 billion funding bill would allocate money to Ukraine, Israel, the southern border and more. Senate Republicans this week voted to stop the package from advancing. It's crucial that the United States and our partners continue to do our respective parts. And that's why the supplemental that's currently before Congress is so necessary and so urgent. I see it as the challenge of our generation, uh, just as my grandfather's generation had to fight off Nazi aggression in Europe, we are fighting against Russian aggression in Europe. Russian President Vladimir Putin is officially running for re-election. This comes just a day after Russia's parliament set a date for next year's election, March 17th. Putin has been leader for longer than any other Russian leader since Joseph Stalin. The last election in 2021 was dominated by widespread reports of fraud, and Putin's main rivals were blocked from running. Last month, the Kremlin spokesman said that if Putin decided to run, then no one would be able to compete with him. If he does win, it would guarantee Putin power for another six years. Russia today says peace talks with U Ukraine are unrealistic. The Kremlin was responding to a media report which said Washington wanted to see peace talks in 2024. Russia says it won't agree to talks on Kyiv's terms. It also alleged that the U.S. works to make sure the conflict in Ukraine supports its own economic interests. A former Ukrainian lawmaker was found dead near Moscow. Ilya Kiva was a former member of Ukraine's parliament. The pro-Russian lawmaker fled to Russia after the invasion. 
He was found with a gunshot wound to the head on Wednesday. Russia's state investigative committee opened a probe on murder charges. Several Ukrainian media, citing anonymous sources, report that he was killed by Ukraine, but no official sources confirm. The EU may reopen a case at the World Trade Organization against the U.S. It involves a steel and aluminum dispute that saw the Allies hit each other with tariffs on more than $10 billion in goods. Bloomberg News reported the news today, citing people familiar with the matter. However, the report said the EU won't immediately reintroduce tariffs in response to the disagreement with the U.S. Train drivers in Germany are on strike for a few more hours until 10 p.m. local time. They reportedly want to work 35 hours a week instead of 38. They're also seeking a raise of $600 per month. Germany's railway company calls it irresponsible to strike during the holiday season. Passengers stranded at the railway station in Frankfurt today had differing opinions. No, I don't have any sympathy. The one time when we want to take a train for a trip to Hamburg, there isn't one. I mean, there are so many strikes and I have no understanding for them. For the employees, it's very good to demand higher wages and lower weekly working hours if the demands are reasonable to make ends meet in this current situation. And lastly, train passengers in London also experienced delays this week. This video shows passengers finally getting off a train that was delayed for hours. Transport for London reported severe delays due to damaged overhead power cables. One passenger said it took about four hours to get off the train. Coming up, South Korean singles look for love as marriage and parenthood rates are tanking. The local government is even stepping in, organizing a holiday speeding dating event. And a Christmas commercial has gone viral with a Hollywood-style storyline. We have more on Air, New on Air New Zealand's Great Christmas Chase when we return. year were a color, what would it be? Peach fuzz. That's according to Pantone Color Institute. Its self-proclaimed color experts describe the hue as peaceful and serene. They call it warm, cozy, and even tactile as an answer to the world's turmoil. It's also in with fashion designers and Hollywood stars. Pantone says it uses psychology to pick a top color each year. And as Christmas songs played, 100 South Korean men and women gathered for a festive speed dating event. Participants were dressed to impress, hoping to find love as South Korea's marriage rates plummet. NTD's Andrew Thomas has more on the matchmakers. This mass blonde dating event was an attempt by the local government to reverse a falling birth rate in South Korea. The popularity of marriage and enthusiasm toward parenthood in the country have nosedived. South Korea's ultra-low fertility and birth rate is a serious problem. However, this kind of event isn't a solution for the low birth rate. When we expand the budget for policies that directly support pregnancy, child delivery and parenting, we can expect to hear the cries of more babies in Korean society. The participants were in their 20s and 30s. I'm a little nervous, but with this Christmas mood they set up here, I hope it goes well until the end with a warm and enjoyable atmosphere. 
The event featured wine, chocolate, games, free makeup services, and even background checks. Regarding having a baby, I need to meet a good match first, and then I need to consider whether I have good circumstances. There are lots of things to do, so it's quite burdensome. South Korea's fertility rate dropped to a record low of 0.78 last year. Local mayor Shin Song-jin said solving low birth rates is not a simple endeavor. Of course, low birth rates cannot be resolved with a single policy. We need comprehensive measures. In terms of that, Seongnam City is taking care of issues concerning newly married couples, such as rental housing, housing supply, and their welfare. The mayor stressed that the city was working on several policies for young couples to tackle the issue. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. And now to Italy, where the largest Christmas tree in the world was lit up yesterday. It's an extraordinary tradition in the medieval Italian town of Gubbio. An entire mountain slope lights up the shape of a tree. Volunteers worked for several weeks to prepare the tree, which entered the Guinness Book of World Records in 1991. And it wasn't an easy task. Around 1,300 hours of work were required to create the spectacle. But locals get to reap the reward by seeing the tree in its full glory. This could be one of the best Christmas ads ever. Air New Zealand's feel-good Christmas video, The Great Christmas Chase, is captivating viewers with its Hollywood-style storyline. ad follows a determined flight attendant who's on a mission to return a forgotten gift, overcoming obstacles throughout the airport despite the challenges. The crew member never gives up. The video was viewed by 1.5 million people in six days. The airline said the film showcases the company's commitment to excellent customer service during the busy Christmas season. The airline also shared some travel tips like booking extra connecting time between flights and wearing slip-on shoes. And if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, please feel free to email us at news.today at ntd.com. Welcome to NTD News Today. Here are today's top stories. Hunter Biden is now facing nine new criminal tax charges. The prosecutors allege it involved a four-year scheme to avoid paying taxes while spending money on his lifestyle and drugs instead. California is strapped for cash. The nation's most populous state and the world's fifth largest economy is struggling amid persistent inflation. House Democrats call for new censorship on Facebook and X. Lawmakers call the content about abortion reversals misinformation and say it's not backed by science. San Francisco beefs up an election ballot policy. Candidates can no longer get creative with Chinese characters on the ticket. A former drug trafficker now works on the other side of the law, teaching police how to fight the cartels. We have the story of the man who helped bring down El Chapo. 
and an unexpected development in golf as a prominent GPA player defects to the rival Live Golf League as merger talks continues. NTD's Dave Martin joins us in the studio to discuss. This is NTD News Today, live from our NTD Global Headquarters. Here are Stephania Cox and Chris Beers. The U.S. economy is up nearly 200,000 new jobs. According to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, 199,000 jobs were added in November. That figure was about 20,000 more than economists had expected. The unemployment rate fell from 3.9% to 3.7%. And President Biden and transportation officials have announced more than $8 billion in federal rail grants. The money will go toward 10 projects, all funded by the bipartisan infrastructure law. The ambitious Brightline West project is getting $3 billion alone. The high-speed rail line is expected to connect Las Vegas to Los Angeles in half the time it currently takes to drive. Planners hope it will be completed in time for the 2028 Olympics in L.A. Also getting funding, a controversial high-speed rail project connecting Los Angeles to San Francisco that's already years behind schedule. California is facing a record $68 billion budget deficit. The nation's most populous state has been struggling since last year amid persistent inflation. Today, it's much more expensive for people and businesses to borrow money. Fewer people are buying homes and fewer businesses are hiring workers. That's resulting in less tax revenue for the state. The $68 billion hole is the biggest deficit in dollars in state history. Previous deficits have been larger as a percentage of state spending. California's current budget tops $300 billion, the largest by far of any state. Newsom will present his plan to cover the deficit in January. The governor will then have to negotiate with state lawmakers through June. The next budget year begins July 1st. And on the national level, the White House says Biden isn't changing his Bidenomics branding, although officials haven't used that term in more than a month. Earlier, we spoke with the host of the Can We Please Talk podcast, Mike Leon, who's been tracking this and public sentiment on the economy. Mike Leon, you've been covering the shift away from the Bidenomics branding by the White House. Why do you think the branding hasn't fared too well with voters? Well, Stefania, first of all, thank you for having me again. Uh, I love being on with you guys. You know, it's just it's funny because in our next episode that comes on the Can We Please Talk podcast, we brought on a Democratic strategist and somebody who worked in the Obama uh, administration and campaign and, and worked for one of the House Democrats that's actually been very vocal about this, about not taking Bidenomics back to uh, their constituents and using kind of that terminology. Because I think right now what's happening is we've seen two parts to the economy. We've seen the job reports that have come out and we've seen, you know, the jobs that have been added and unemployment go down. That's great. But the problem is, is that the cost of goods have gone up. The cost of services have gone up. And so when politicians go out there, you always hear them talk about kitchen table issues, right? And how much am I paying for certain things? And you always hear these kind of uh, um, stories that are being told about uh, what you're paying at the pump and what you're paying at the grocery store. And the data is backing that up. The U.S. Bureau of Labor statistics are showing 
that 3.7% increase year over year in the price of consumer goods. Food prices are up. Medical commodities are up. You know, your energy bill is 0.6% higher. So it's not trading when I'm adding up my bills and I was paying maybe a, a 90 bucks to 100 bucks last year. And now I'm paying 110 to 120. And then maybe I don't work in the sectors where the job growth is happening, which is healthcare and government right now. And you, you mentioned you've been speaking, you'll be speaking with Democrats about this and, and their reluctance to go with this term as well. And we've seen that as well in swing states. How much do you think this kind of reluctance among Democrats could impact their strategy going into the 2024 election? Well, I think, you know, the Cook Political Report is the most nonpartisan report out there that kind of analyzes all of these races. There's about 26 seats that are up in play come uh, in 2024 as the House is, is everybody's up for grabs. And, and these 26 seats, you know, there's so much going on with the House uh, and they've got to go back to their constituents and say, especially the Republican ones that are in some districts that could flip, they've got to go back and say, what have we done legislatively? There's not been much that they've been able to pass legislatively. There was a report recently about only 22 or so bills have been pass passed through this House, which is the lowest amount in history. Um, so I think right now, the biggest thing for me that's been echoing, and I've mentioned this a couple different places, was Representative Chip Roy, who's going to be on our program in the coming weeks, he had said something on the House floor recently of like, what do, can I take back to my constituents? What can we do better here in D.C.? We have done nothing. We've got to do something. On the Democratic side, I think right now it's not helping that they're not trying to find some bipartisan support in gathering some of this stuff and, and getting the, 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 uh, the message of unity and working together in Congress. I've talked to a couple folks in Congress about how do you reach across the aisle and do something that can start helping the American people, whether it's feeling, you know, uh, inflation and and the cost of goods and services, like I mentioned before, going up. Mm -hmm. And right now we're around to enter the Christmas break. So you're not going to see anything until 2024. And I think everyone's kind of using it on the Democratic side as this political chip of like, let's just wait because the Republicans are in control right now. We don't really have to do anything because they're in control and we can just kind of blame them. And I, that's not the approach that I would take if I was, what, uh, what you know, do giving... You think what do you yeah. think they should do? What what are the you've laid out some of the challenges. What do you think, you know, could help them, or what would you suggest? Well, well I mean, look, there's a problem solvers caucus in the House. For people that don't know, there's there's a, a aptly named problem solvers caucus. It's a, made up of about 65 or 66 uh, members of the House that are Republican and Democrat. They've solved no problems so far, but so but that's their name. That's their moniker, and. This caucus right now, especially one uh, Maria Salazar is in my district here in Florida. This this uh, committee or, or uh, you know, whatever it is that they're called, they should come together and go to Leader Jeffries and Speaker Johnson and really talk about the efforts they can put together to, to pass some type of bills and legislations that can that can actually impact the American people. The problem, and you know this, Stefania, and the audience knows this, we're entering 2024, the primary season's about to start, we're going to start losing track and focus of what is happening in the House and Senate, because we're trying to figure out who will be the leader of the free world in 2024. And and the problem that's really happening on a local level and, and impact at the federal is these folks have to go back out there and champion the message of what they did in Congress. They haven't done much in Congress, and that's the problem. Mike Leon, that's all we have time for. Thank you so much. Oh. Great to speak with Thank you. Thank you, Stefania.
Minimum wage workers in 22 states will get a raise at the start of the new year. The higher hourly rates are due either to scheduled increases or lawmakers upping the minimum wage in their jurisdictions because of inflation. Come January 1st, seven states and D.C. will have minimum wages of $15 or more. In New York City, it's increasing to $16 an hour. The highest state minimum wage will be Washington State at $16.28, up from $15.74. A close second is California, which is raising its minimum wage to $16 from $15.50. The state with the biggest jump in its minimum wage next year will be Hawaii, which is hiking it by $2. 20 states are still using the federal minimum wage of $7.25, which hasn't gone up since 2009. Hunter Biden is facing new criminal charges. It's the second criminal case a special counsel David Weiss has brought against the president's son in his long-running DOJ investigation. Weiss announced the indictment last night accusing Hunter Biden of failing to pay over a million dollars in taxes while spending millions on items of a personal nature instead. The indictment alleges this took place during a four-year scheme to support what it called a lavish lifestyle. NTD's Jeremy Sandberg has more on the new charges. A California grand jury returned a nine-count indictment against Hunter Biden Thursday, charging him with three felony tax offenses and six misdemeanor tax offenses. Special counsel David Weiss alleging the first son spent millions on a lavish lifestyle and drugs instead of fulfilling his tax obligations. Weiss says the charges include three counts of failure to pay taxes for the years 2016, 2017, and 2019, and three counts of failure to file tax returns for the years 2017 and 2018. The special counsel's team accuses Hunter Biden of engaging in a four-year scheme to avoid paying taxes amounting to at least $1.4 million. Prosecutors allege that Hunter Biden included false business deductions when filing for 2018 after eventually paying for that year and claim it was done in order to evade assessment and reduce the substantial tax liabilities he faced. Also in the 56-page indictment are accusations of subverting the payroll and tax withholding process of his own company by withdrawing millions of dollars outside of its normal withholding process. It accuses the president's son of spending his money during that time on drugs, escorts and girlfriends, luxury hotels, exotic cars, and clothing among other items of a personal nature, quote, in short, everything but his taxes. It states he spent over $1.8 million in 2018 alone, listing roughly $770,000 in cash withdrawals that year, along with over $380,000 payments to women and close to $150,000 on clothing and accessories. The indictment also lists spending for 2016, 2017, and 2019. Hunter Biden's attorney, Abby Lowell, stated Thursday, based on the facts and the law, charges wouldn't have been brought if his client had any other last name. Lowell accuses Weiss of reneging on a prior plea deal under GOP pressure and then piling on nine new charges after a five-year-long investigation. If convicted on all counts, Hunter Biden could face a maximum penalty of 17 years in prison. The Justice Department says its investigation is ongoing. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. We reached out to the White House, DOJ, and Hunter Biden's attorney for comment. We'll let you know when we hear back. Only two candidates remain in Houston's race for mayor. The next mayor of the fourth largest city in the U.S. will be elected in a runoff. State Senator John Whitmire and Congresswoman Sheila Jackson Lee competed for the office. Crime, cr crumbling infrastructure, affordable housing and potential budget shortfalls are front and center. 
The runoff election will be held on December 9th. Only 21% of Houston's 1.2 million registered voters cast ballots in the November 7th election. Both Whitmire and Jackson Lee failed to secure the necessary majority of votes to avoid a runoff. The winner will succeed Democratic Mayor Sylv Sylvester Turner due to term limits. San Francisco is beefing up an election ballot policy. Candidates will no longer be able to freely pick their own Chinese name that appears on the ticket. Since 1999, ballots include Chinese transliterations of candidate names. More than 20% of the city's population is Chinese or Chinese-American. Candidates have been shopping around for more authentic-sounding names to use. California in 2019 passed a law clarifying the standards. Candidates have to stick to the transliteration provided by the state. That's unless they were given a Chinese name at birth or can prove their name is known and identified within the public sphere. Coming up, more children are getting sick from eating applesauce pouches. Some brands have been recalled due to lead poisoning. What we know about the situation. And McDonald's is set to test a smaller format concept store called Cosmics. What does it look like? More in just a moment here on NTD News Today. Democrats are calling on social media platforms to censor content about abortion pill reversal. House Oversight Committee Democrats want Mark Zuckerberg and Elon Musk to address what they call misinformation about abortion medication. Such abortions involve two drugs. The first drug, mifeprestone, blocks the body's natural production of progesterone during pregnancy. That breaks down the uterine lining and terminates the pregnancy. The second drug, misoprostol, expels the aborted child. The two-step drug regimen accounts for more than half of all abortions in the U.S. Reversing a medication abortion requires taking progesterone. The American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists called the protocol unproven and unethical. The Democratic lawmakers accused Facebook and Instagram of promoting pro-life content. Some new cooperation between the U.S. and Mexico. The goal is to stop other countries, especially China, from investing in Mexican companies to get around U.S. sanctions and tariffs. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen announced the agreement yesterday. The two countries are creating a special group to check if foreign investments might be a risk to national security. The group will share information and best practices. The goal is to make sure important industries are secure. In recent years, the U.S. has been making its rules stricter to protect from foreign companies, especially those from China. A former Chicago drug trafficker now has a new job. He's teaching law enforcement how to fight cartels and illegal drug smugglers. We have the story of the man who helped bring down El Chapo. Please note that we didn't show his face out of concern for his safety. I come from a family of drug traffickers. This is Margarito Flores. He used to work with one of the world's most notorious drug kingpins, Joaquin El Chapo Guzman. By the time I was 17, I guess uh, I graduated by then, right? I had a degree in drug trafficking. Flores went from counting packages of drugs as a child 
to running a multi-billion dollar network with his twin brother in the Chicago area in the early 2000s to eventual informant who turned on El Chapo. Now he's pulling back the curtain on his former trade secrets for law enforcement. We're going to be going around the country and hopefully around the world and being able to share some of these, um, these tactics. That's where you see money and, and drugs. Flores works with an Illinois-based firm called Dynamic Police Training. At this session near Chicago, over 100 law enforcement personnel are learning about the flow of bulk U.S. currency that finances trafficking. So I'm talking about bulk U.S. currency that, that needs to be moved in semi-trucks. That is what fuels drug cartels. Between 2005 and 2008, the Flores Brothers distribution cell earned nearly $2 billion receiving more than 3,300 pounds of cocaine a month from the Beltran Leva and El Chapo's Sinaloa cartels. That's according to federal court documents and the U.S. Department of Justice. Arrested in 2008, the brothers were sentenced to 14 years in prison. For their cooperation, they served five. Prosecutors credit them with providing unparalleled assistance for the government's case against El Chapo. As informants, the Flores brothers pressed record on an audio tape device and called him to discuss a heroin shipment. The phone call for sure, we knew that it was going to, you know, change our lives because the government had let us know that there has never been a legally uh, recorded or intercepted call with Chapo Guzman talking about a, a drug transaction in the United States. What do they want to do? The brothers were released in 2020. Get rid of it. Flores' law enforcement trainees told Reuters his insight helps them figure out the best way to dismantle narcotics networks. I don't know if there's anyone out there that could, you know, sit here today and, you know, understand the American drug trade, mm -hmm. the Mexican drug trade, as I have. I live both sides of it from every aspect. Washington, D.C. is launching a new crime-fighting initiative called the Real-Time Crime Center. D.C. police will run the center and monitor a network of more than 300 closed-circuit cameras 24 hours a day. It's a bid to tame the serious crime spike in the city. We have to have more technology uh, to to balance off not having the number of people resources that we have had in past years. So no camera will pre replace a live police officer, uh, but it does enhance um, the, the uh, force's ability to be in more places. The American Civil Liberties Union of D.C. called the plan, quote, an alarming expansion of government surveillance. The real-time crime center is expected to launch in February. In Maryland, light rail services will be suspended at all stops starting today for emergency inspections and repairs. Maryland Transit authorities say the suspension is out of an abundance of caution. They discovered the potential for a punctured conduit on its light rail vehicles. This comes after a blowout and several smoke events between November 2021 and November 2023, with three of those incidents happening in the last four months. One person suffered minor injuries in an October incident. 
Limited service is set to be restored once inspection and repair is completed on at least eight rail cars. Full service will be restored once inspection and repairs on all 19 vehicles is complete. It's unclear when the work will be completed. In the meantime, shuttle buses will be provided at all stations. And lead poisoning linked to recalled applesauce pouches has increased. The FDA says the number of children sickened has risen to 64. They are all under the age of 6. The FDA previously recalled three products and said cinnamon may be the source of the lead contamination. The agency now says the cinnamon was supplied by a company in Ecuador called Negasmart. According to the FDA, Ecuadorian authorities reported the cinnamon had higher levels of lead than allowed in that country. The FDA also says it conducted an on-site inspection of the facility in Ecuador and ingredient sample collection is underway. McDonald's secretly launched a smaller format concept store called Cosmics. The first location opened in Bolingbrook, Illinois, about 30 miles west of Chicago as part of a limited test run. This is McDonald's new concept store, Cosmics. The fast food giant launched the first location as part of a limited test run. The menu features cold beverages like flavored iced teas and slushes, as well as familiar McDonald's items like McMuffin. McDonald's aims to open about 10 of the pilot stores by the end of 2024. The south and northeast are bracing for storms this weekend. The Storm Prediction Center says the Arkansas, Louisiana, Texas region could see damaging wind and large hail Friday night into Saturday. Some of these isolated systems may also produce a few tornadoes. Heavy rain is also expected in the Great Lakes throughout Ohio and down to the Tennessee Valleys. Between 2 and 4 inches is likely in the southeast. As the weekend progresses, the mid-Atlantic and northeast could see heavy rain on Sunday. Cold air filling in behind the front could briefly turn that into snow. Coming up, experts warn that China's likely collecting DNA at scale and using it for transnational suppression. We speak with an activist and human rights advocate for insights. And a sweeping purge within China's most secretive political system. A report alleges Beijing's newly ousted foreign minister was tortured to death. We'll have the details soon when we return. Welcome back. China is likely using mass DNA collection for transnational repression. That's according to experts at a recent Senate hearing for the Foreign Relations Committee. How bad is it and how far does it reach? We speak with the founder and president of Women's Rights Without Frontiers, Reggie Littlejohn, for insights. Reggie, you have an intimate understanding of the Chinese Communist Party and that's through your human rights advocacy work. Um, what would you say are the key ways that China's scientific and medical community are influenced and affected by the control of the Communist Party? Well, they are absolutely controlled because they have something called the civil-military fusion. And what that means is that every company in China, indeed every even citizen of China, if they are uh, requested to do so by the Chinese Communist Party, have to share all their data with the CCP. So th there is a very direct connection between anything that uh, any company has in China and the CCP. They can use it for any purpose that they want, including military purposes. And you've spoken in your organization is very outspoken about forced abortions and sterilizations, forced sterilizations within China. 
how do how does the the tactics of the Chinese Communist Party uh, influence these and make them happen? And also in regards to forced organ harvesting. Well, this is the thing: is that people are trained as physicians um, in China, and actually they're trained as physicians all over the world, including in the United States. Uh, and I can only imagine how heartbroken these physicians are when they are trained, hopefully to save lives, to actually be put into uh, a situation of having to perform forced abortions, uh, which happened to uh, I don't know, hundreds of millions of women and babies in China. Um, these are performed by medical professionals and they can't get out of it. They have to do it. And the same thing with a forced organ harvesting, um, where there, there recent um, evidence has emerged that these organs are, are not harvested after the uh, person, and not, we believe these are prisoners, you know, that, that, this, that, that prisoners are being har uh, harvested, their organs, mm. that it's not after they're dead. You know that that they are removing these organs while the prisoner is still living, and you know, the, and obviously doctors are doing this. So it's it's horrible. Yeah, and and there was a recent Senate hearing that uh, highlighted concerns about mass collection of DNA within China for the purposes of transnational repression. What what do you know about that? Well, there's there's a company called BGI. Um, I believe it's the Beijing Genomics Institute, and they have been uh, harvesting uh, DNA data from all over the world at alarming rates. Uh, and who knows what they are going to be using it for. I don't think that they're using it to improve our health. They could be using it uh, for military purposes, like to develop bioweapons. And another thing, as you say, in terms of transnational repression, there has been a movement inside of China where they are getting the blood from about 10% of the population of Chinese boys and men so that they can identify um, their relatives and they can then go after their relatives. So if somebody is accused of a crime, they can go after their relatives. And this kind of thing can also happen transnationally. So um, there is a lot of transnational repression, but China, it, the cases, 30% of the cases come from the Chinese Communist Party. And so this kind of thing could impact Chinese people here in the U.S. In what other ways does do these practices influence us in the U.S. and, and our institutions? Well, our institutions are at, at great risk. There's a couple of things going on. Some of our institutions are uh, collaborating with the Chinese Communist Party, which I think, uh, or like BGI and some of these other uh, com companies that, that the, the information can go straight to the Chinese military. I personally think that that should not be allowed. I think that that should be illegal. But then even for companies that are not collaborating with the Chinese Communist Party, their information can be hacked. Um, so, for example, the Anthem Group, they, their, their information was hacked a number of years ago, uh, meaning that all kinds of information for American citizens went to the Chinese Communist Party. So we are at very great risk. We have to understand, Chinese Communist Party is not our friend, it's not our collaborator, it's not even our competitor. It is our enemy. Reggie Littlejohn, Women's Rights Without Frontiers, thank you so much. And staying in the Asia-Pacific, we have the major stories from Taiwan, Japan, and elsewhere. Reports say China's missing ex-foreign minister Qin Gang is dead, either by suicide or to torture.
That's according to Politico, citing two people with access to top Chinese officials. They say Qin died in late July at a military hospital in Beijing. That's around the same time Qin was removed from his ministerial post. In October, China's former defense minister Li Xiangfu was also ousted two months after he disappeared from public view. China's opaque political system makes it difficult to uncover information about officials. Leading up to Taiwan's presidential election, the island today reported 12 Chinese fighter jets and a suspected Chinese spy balloon. Taiwan's defense ministry said they spotted the balloon roughly 110 miles southwest of North Taiwan. It traveled eastward for about an hour, crossing the Taiwan Strait before disappearing. This raises concerns that the Chinese regime is trying to interfere in Taiwan's elections. Taiwan's foreign minister said the Chinese regime has been using very negative language against one of the presidential candidates. And those kinds of statements have already told the Taiwanese people that they want to interfere in uh, Taiwan's election and they want to shape the results of the election. And they are telling the Taiwanese people that if you vote for this political party, that means war. Vote for the other political party means uh, peace. The National Security Advisors of the United States, South Korea and Japan are meeting in Seoul today and tomorrow. Top on their agenda are North Korea and other global issues. The security advisors agreed to, dis to boost cooperation to curb North Korea's nuclear threat and missile provocations. North Korea launched its first spy satellite last month. The North says this helps them better monitor U.S. military activities. The U.S. and South Korea will also hold a separate meeting tomorrow to discuss expanding cooperation in advanced technologies such as chips, batteries and AI. President Biden's nominee for Deputy Secretary of State, Kurt Campbell, also addressed security concerns in the Indo-Pacific region. Senators asked him about China, Russia and North Korea at the confirmation hearing Thursday. Campbell said he believes U.S. long-term interests in the 21st century will play out largely in the Indo-Pacific and there is the real risk of strategic surprise. He argued the most important U.S. ally on the global stage today might be Japan and that security in the region also depends on ties between Japan and South Korea. I'm confident that China will be unsuccessful in building the kind of bonds of trust that we are doing now with Japan and South Korea. Australia today signed a contract with South Korean military supplier Hanhua Aerospace. This will see Australia receive about 130 Redback Infantry fighting vehicles by 2028. The deal is worth $2.4 billion. Australia says this is their single largest army purchase to date. Australia noted that the vehicles would play an enormous role in improving the country's military capability. The vehicles will be manufactured in South Korea. The first batch will be delivered in 2027. As New Zealand's Conservative government comes into power, they are looking at reform in many areas, including education. The government has agreed to overhaul the existing gender, sexuality and relationship guidelines in schools. This decision means removing gender ideology from the national curriculum in schools and shifting the focus towards academic achievement. Will China invade Taiwan? On a Japanese island close to Taiwan, officials there are already preparing for an influx of refugees. That's if a conflict between Taiwan and China breaks out. Here's more. This disaster drill is meant to prepare for crisis on Japan's westernmost frontier, be it a natural disaster or, as island mayor Kenichi Itakatsu increasingly worries, 
a humanitarian one. Yonaguni Island recently ran this exercise with Japan's self-defense forces, bracing both for tsunami and the event of the island's close neighbor, Taiwan, coming under attack from China. I'm worried about what could happen. It's a situation that we cannot predict. Yonaguni is only about 60 miles east of Taiwan, a self-ruled island of 24 million people. China claims it as its own territory and has ratcheted up simulated missile strikes and other military displays. Yonaguni residents say they worry about a possible refugee crisis if conflict broke out nearby. Japan has earmarked $290 billion for defense this year, the biggest buildup since the Second World War. But more than two dozen current and former Japanese officials and island residents said there was no plan from Tokyo for Yonaguni, where they imagine hundreds if not thousands of refugees could try to flee. What if they come here? What if they come here? I asked the government. There was no answer. Everyone was silent. It's like their mouths were taped shut. Yonaguni has around 1,700 residents. Koji Sugama, the official in charge of preparing the island for disasters, thinks right now there wouldn't be enough emergency supplies if the worst comes to pass. This container is one of three on the whole island. Sugama says each one can support around 800 people. These are cookies made from rice. Then there's curry pilaf, tomato risotto, corn pilaf, mixed rice. This will do for one, maybe two days. Yonaguni relies on bi-weekly ferry and a handful of daily flights from nearby islands for supplies. But these can often be cancelled due to bad weather. So far, the Japanese government's response to rising tension in the Asia-Pacific has focused on military spending, which Prime Minister Fumio Kishida plans to double in the next five years. If something happens, I really have no idea how the Prime Minister at the time will act, what decisions they will take or even be able to take. Up next, a twist development in golf as a prominent PGA player defects to the rival Live Golf League as merger talks continue. NTD's Dave Martin joins us to discuss after the break. back and now for your sports news we're joined by NTD's Dave Martin Dave in golf this week Masters champion John Rahm switched to live golf uh, most thought live would be an afterthought when GPA's merger with them became official what does this say about their future well it doesn't appear to be going away I mean ESPN is reporting that he got 300 million dollars to leave the PGA other reports have it at 500 million he hasn't said either way. Uh, now, would they give up that much money, though, if the league is going to be going away? I wouldn't think so, but this whole thing is really throwing everyone for a curve. Now, the merger hasn't actually been finalized, but this definitely would help Liv's negotiating position. I mean, it really seemed like the PGA one, knew it couldn't compete with Liv's deep pockets. I mean, they're funded by Saudi Arabia's public investment fund. So they wanted to merge before more players were poached, you know, where they, where they would have less negotiating power. Now, ironically, they had a non-solicitation clause with Liv that prevented either side from poaching the other's players during these negotiations. But the DOJ's antitrust department got involved, didn't like it, saying it would restrict competition. 
So it was removed, and look what happened. Now, John Rahm, he was a big get, you know. He was, he's ranked third in the world. He's only 29 years old, so this is a big win by Liv. Now, Dave, the NBA's in-season tournament final will be Saturday. The Indiana Pacers are playing the Los Angeles Lakers for the title. This is the first time they've held this event. How do you think it's gone? Well, I really think its first objective was just to grab some headlines during football season. To that extent, I think it's been successful. You know, Usually no one really pays attention to the NBA until like Christmas Day when they put a whole bunch of TV games on TV when there's little other competition. Uh, but there's a lot of curiosity about this tournament, how it would work. Plus, I think the games have had more intensity than you'd normally expect at the start of the season in November, December. That always attracts the fans, too. And the players, they were enticed with cash prizes, something like half a million dollars for each player on the winning team. Plus, for the league, their biggest star, LeBron James, is playing in the finals of this tournament. So I think it's been a big win for the league so far. And Dave, let's turn to college football now. A couple of prominent coaches have voiced their frustrations about, you know, trying to suit up a full team this time of year. They didn't really blame the NCAA's transfer rule, though, but said the problem is actually tampering, tampering excuse me, by other teams. What were they referring to? Well, yeah, Dabo Swinney and Mark Stoops, head coaches of uh, Clemson and K Kentucky, respectively, are both trying to play bowl games with less than a full roster of players. It's not easy. Basically, players can look into transferring by entering their name into the transfer portal as soon as the regular season is done, which was like last week. But there's still bowl games to be played. And there's been like more than 2,000 players who've already put their names in. So they're not really on any teams during this time. So what happens is plenty of teams are thin at key positions for the game. Now, Swinney said the problem could be resolved if the NCAA would actually like um, punish players, uh, sorry, other coaches and teams for tampering with these players. Ironically, though, all this is happening while seven states are suing the NCAA for having any limits on transfer rules at all. So it doesn't appear that either side is really happy with what's going on right now. So much going on, though. Thank you very much, Dave. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Dave. All right, next up, patience may just be the key to good parenting and harmonious family relationships. On this episode of Strong Mind and Body, we get some tips for practicing patience with your children. Here's NTD's Gina Marie. No matter what the age or stage of your children, patience is a key element. When we lack patience, it's hard to be the warm, nurturing parent we want to be. We might snap at them or send them the message that they are a bother. Parenthood calls us to be more selfless, patient, humble, and present. How can we do our very best for our children? Here are five tips. Number one, take care. Most parents will do everything they can to take care of their children, but they often neglect taking care of themselves. The irony is that in order to do well taking care of one's children, one must tend to oneself. Subsisting on leftover goldfish crackers and four hours of sleep a night isn't going to do it. Aim for a good night's sleep, adequate nutrition, a little exercise and some sunshine. Number two, simplify. Often, a lack of patience manifests when one feels interrupted or overwhelmed. Childhood is fleeting. Make your parenting duties the priority. You can do this by scaling back on other less important obligations or tasks. Number three, bedtime. Regular bedtime routines can have a huge effect on your entire home life. If you and your children's bedtime habits are not conducive to your life, take the steps to establish new habits. 
Number four, slow down. Parents have a lot on their plates. We can find ourselves rushing from one task to another. Slow down and enjoy the moment. Play with their toys, read another storybook, linger at the park and color right beside them. Don't miss the precious moments. And finally, number five, nurture. If you are losing patience with your children's behavior, take time to lovingly and patiently teach them well. Ensure they are getting enough sleep and eating healthy, unprocessed foods. Also consider scaling back on screen time and getting them outside into nature. The world's largest Santa Claus projected on a rock face in Switzerland. Artist Jerry Hofstetter is the mind behind this Christmas innovation. The colorful figure was projected across an area more than 2,000 feet long and 1,300 feet high, nearly one and a half miles away from the observer's viewpoint. The artist is known for his light projections on landmarks including the Matterhorn and the Brandenburg Gate. He said this installation was challenging due to the humidity and clouds. As for the meaning behind the projection, the artist said it's to remain a little child and hope because light is hope. And now to Italy, where the largest Christmas tree in the world was lit up yesterday. It's an extraordinary tradition in the medieval Italian town of Gubbio. An entire mountain slope lights up in the shape of a tree. Volunteers worked for several weeks to prepare the tree, which entered the Guinness Book of World Records in 1991. And it wasn't an easy task. Around 1,300 hours of work were required to create the spectacle. But locals get to reap the rewards by seeing the tree in its full glory. Astronauts are probing the mysteries of the cosmos. This week, the mystery involves a desiccated months-old tomato. It's apparently an inside joke on the International Space Station. Well, we might have found something that uh, someone had been looking for for quite a while. Our uh, good friend Frank Rubio, who headed home, uh, has been blamed for quite a while for uh, eating the tomato, but we can exonerate him. Uh, we found the tomatoes. The astronauts say the tomato came from Rubio's agricultural project on the space station. That's why he was their top suspect and the subject of their teasing. And a sea otter pup has a new home at the Shedd Aquarium in Chicago. It's only eight weeks old. That was two months after it was rescued from a remote town in Alaska. The Alaska Sea Life Center contacted the Shedd Aquarium, which is equipped to care for rescued otters. Their otter team made the journey to bring the pup to Chicago. The little one is a northern sea otter who was found alone and malnourished in the town of Seldovia. Its name is yet to be determined. Aquarium staff are providing round-the-clock care for the otter, including feeding and grooming to take care of its dense coat. Caring for a little otter pup is just like caring for an infant. So he gets fed every few hours. He also needs to get groomed. So sea otters have a very dense coat. There's anywhere from 700,000 to a million hairs per square inch. He has several milestones he needs to still mate. He needs to not be drinking a bottle anymore, get a little bit more um, bigger in size, also eating more diet, so those sort of things before he's ready to meet the other otters. The pup will remain in Shed Sea Otter Nursery for a few months, building bonds with the staff. He will eventually be introduced to the otter habitat and the five other otters at the aquarium. 
And that's all for today's news. Thank you for tuning in. Feel free to reach out to us with news tips or feedback at news.today at ntd.com. We'll be back with more stories on Monday.